Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Dr. Morgan Gilmore, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, and look, you've come, again, recommended by uh, one of our former podcast guests and all-around superstar, Dr. Jennifer Lavers. I understand you uh, do a little bit of work with Jennifer at uh, Adrift Lab. That's correct. That's correct. I worked with her a little bit for my PhD, and then I went back and worked with her as a postdoc um, just last year. So whereabouts are you calling from today, Morgan? Uh, so I'm actually in Oregon. So Oregon's the state north of California, and I normally live in California, but um, there's a lot of wildfires in California right now, including yeah. right where I live. And so while our house was not directly threatened by the fire, this, the air quality has been terrible because the smoke has been so bad. And so on Friday, we kind of, my partner and I made a decision to drive up to Oregon to stay with my partner's parents. Wow. And so um, we're here for hopefully just a week. I've actually been through that uh, the amazing redwoods a couple of years ago, and it was actually at the end of the last big wildfires that you had over there, which seemed to obviously happen every year or two, but a beautiful part of the world, very, very close to my heart. A very good friend of mine and a friend of ours lives up in Portland. Mm. So, look, we know and love that area, and um, it's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful area and, and just horrible to see what's happening over there. It's one of those places that you, it's not until you actually walk through and see the enormity of these trees and stand at the the base of them that you feel so small as a human being. Um, <laughs> yeah. It just takes your breath away. Yes, yes, for sure. I love the redwoods. And a lot of the state parks we go to on a regular basis sound like they've burned up a bit, and so it's really disappointing. Um, but uh Redwoods are made to withstand fire to a certain degree. So Yeah, um, that was something interesting. When, when we were going through there, Jim was explaining to us that, you know, this has been a natural occurrence. It, 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 it happens periodically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these, the, the amazing redwoods, they seem to, you know, pull through it okay. But, I mean, I mean, this is off topic, but we're obviously seeing an increase in the amount of wildfires there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So this past fire um, last Saturday night. So California, I live in the central coastal part, and it's very much a Mediterranean climate. And so we have really dry summers and somewhat wet winters. And we've had droughts recently. 
anyway, during the summertime, we don't get any rain at all. And so we actually had a thunderstorm come through last Saturday and then again on Sunday. And while we didn't get any rain from it, um, it was uh, remnants of a tropical storm that had been off of Baja, California and Mexico. And, you know, kind of worked away its way up the Pacific coast. And when it hit central California, it, there were like 10 or 11,000 lightning strikes into our very dry forests, um, some of which haven't been burned for 50 years at least. Wow. And I remember hearing one of the, the firemen um, in the press conference that they've been doing uh, say that in some places there are three feet of just like duff of like needles from the redwood that have yeah, you know, yeah. just fallen over time. But when you have three feet of it, that's a lot of fuel. That's and fuel, that's isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we, we experienced them down here, down here in Australia, just the summer just gone and exactly the same thing. You've just basically yeah. got you know, this, well, and in our case, the Australian outback, but a lot of it had that fuel because it hadn't burned mm-hmm. for a long time and, and they hadn't yeah. had the fire reductions. And, and I mean, it's quite political down here, but gee, it's just a, it's a recipe for disaster when you've just got no rain, thunderstorms rolling through. It's just like, hey, we, let's start some fires. But oh, no, it's, it's a wonderful place and I, I hope you're safe and, and um, I'm pleased that you are and, and, and welcome to our little show. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. <laughs> and sorry, Morgan, you, you must be just over drama, surely. Like, if it's not wildfires, landslides, floods, <laughs> uh, COVID, COVID yeah. uh, protests, you know, I don't know how you get any work done, really. <laughs> yeah, honestly, working, uh, so the fires started pretty much on Sunday and then the smoke just got increasingly worse over the, you know, last week and working you know, with the smoke just outside got increasingly difficult for sure. And mm. so like some of these other issues, like while they're, you know, on the news and, you know, definitely present in everyday life, but to a different extent, like it's really hard to ignore like environmental things that are directly affecting your breathing air that's right outside. So it's been, yeah, 2020 is just a really crazy year this year. <laughs> mm. I just think we're going to look back at 2020 and, and, and we'll look back at it at one of those, um, times in our lives and we'll look back and go, we got through that. You know, right now when we're in the thick of it, it doesn't feel like it. And, and everyone, whether it's, uh, yourself, Morgan, or, you know, myself down here and Brad and, well, I physically can't go and Brad's in Queensland. I'm in New South Wales. We, our borders are shut. We can't go and see each other or travel. So there's perks to it. Well, there are perks to it. I don't get to see Brad. But, you know, everyone's, um, someone said to me the other day, we're all in the same storm, just in different boats. That's a really great analogy, yeah. Yeah, and I just made me go, gee, we, we all are. So anyway, enough about how bad <laughs> life is and, and COVID and everything. Welcome to our little show. We've we've had some amazing chats recently, and um, even last night um, a couple of students of Jennifer's uh, came on uh, and oh, had a really? bit of a chat. Yeah, it was oh, it was a, it was a great chat, wasn't it, Brad? Yeah, yeah, really good. And I was living in and, and Megan, uh, both from University of Tasmania, and both uh, are probably colleagues of yours, uh, Morgan. And and look, obviously, it's been a, a crazy time this year, but uh, certainly, like I, I sort of said, it must be hard doing work. But you, you're obviously still doing doing yeah. work, and uh, and that's the reason for the uh, chat today. Was you've actually just recently released a, a very interesting article, which we'll get to, and it was actually just recently uh, published in the uh, I think Journal of Hazardous Waste, I think, and it's called Latex Balloons Do Not Degrade Uniformly in Freshwater Marine and Composting Environments. It's really fascinating, I, I, I found, and it actually flies in the face with some of the previous research, but. 
I guess before we go into that, I'm just keen to sort of get. Uh, so, am I right in saying you're you're currently at the Institute for, for Marine and Antarctic Studies in Tasmania? Is that your official place of work, even though you're in California? Uh, kind of. So, um, I was a postdoc last year. Um, I left Tasmania in February, and um, I am still involved in some projects in the lab, including this balloon paper that was just published, and we have some additional balloon research that um, we're hoping to get off the ground soon. Because I still have some projects going on, I'm you know, still have an active research role with the lab, even though I'm not physically there. We have a great team with students and um, just collaborators that are really awesome. And, you know, even though I'm far away and honestly probably won't be back to Tasmania anytime soon, I can definitely count on them to help our research along. And hopefully we can publish and share more of this research in the next year or so. And I guess the key question is, how did you sort of get involved in this sort of research around balloons? I'm looking at your... uh academic record. So you've got a PhD in ocean sciences, a, is it a master's in biology from Bucknell University and, a, and a, a bachelor of science, I think, in wildlife and conservation biology. So obviously there's a real focus on our ferry and, and uh, Finn <laughs> friends. Uh, so how, how did this all well, We love a good backstory. Come on. Why not just go all the way back, Morgan? So. Yeah, we love a good backstory. Back <laughs> so you first started studying in California, is that right? Uh, so I'm actually from the East Coast of the United States, a little state called Connecticut, which mm. is um, pretty much the space between Boston and New York. But yeah, I grew up in the middle of the woods and I was always playing outside. So I always thought I'd do something wildlife related, but that was kind of a vague notion when I was a kid. Back in 2005, after, right after I graduated college from the University of Rhode Island, my first position right out of college was at a research station in Hawaii. And I was basically just a biological volunteer, but I worked in French Frigate Shoals, which is part of the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands. And it's this research station owned by the Fish and Wildlife Service. And it's half mile long islands full of pretty much nothing but seabirds. And I ended up staying there for eight months the first time, just uh, monitoring the birds and just learning all about seabirds. And that was definitely a turning point in my life where I was like, oh, like this is what I want to do. And so it was actually out there in 2005 where I met Jennifer Lavers, my postdoc advisor and the head of the Adrift Lab. She was a grad student at the time. She was working on her PhD, or finishing up her PhD. Um, and so we were working together on birds out there. I met a lot of other people and a lot of other mentors and just learned about kind of the seasonal field work that turns out people do. And I hadn't really learned about that option in college, but it turns out that if you... Um, like traveling or like animals and don't mind living in really remote places with a very small number of people. Like there's actually a lot of opportunities <laughs> yeah. to island hop, essentially working with all these different birds. <laughs> wow. It's uh, it's amazing. Since, since we had a chat with Jennifer, we've had a couple of uh, great chats and, and, and how we've met you. But isn't it interesting, you know, you meet on a remote island, you know, 15 years ago and, mm -hmm. you know, both go, hey, what am I going to do now that you doctors and publishing awesome papers and, um, you know, who knows what would have happened if you hadn't met Jennifer. But um, oh, so, so, okay. And and then how did you end up in Tasmania, obviously, through your relationship with Jennifer? Was it, I mean, this is 2005, we're now mm -hmm. 2020. What's that 15 years look like for you? Yeah, yeah. So I kept traveling. I worked in, on other islands in Hawaii on different bird projects that were studying the ecology of birds. Um, reproduction, you know, nesting habits. Uh, we were radio tracking some species in the forest on the big island of Hawaii and 
I worked with ducks on Maui and we were swabbing for um, avian influenza at the time because bird flu had just kind of emerged as, you know, a pretty big problem. I worked a lot in Hawaii and just, again, doing seasonal work that was, you know, maybe six or eight months here, six or eight months there. And I eventually decided that as much as I liked that, I wanted to kind of move forward with my career and, you know, actually start asking some research questions instead of just helping other people out answer them. And so to do that um, in science, like you really need an advanced degree. Mm. And so I um, did my master's research at Bucknell University, where I was studying the reproductive ecology of a seabird called Leech's storm petrel. And I did field work in eastern Canada for that. And Basically, I was just asking, you know, like, what makes a good parent, you know, for a seabird? You know, is it something about their diet? Is it something about their hormones? That kind of thing. And then I wasn't done yet. And so I really wanted to do a PhD. And so then I came to Santa Cruz, California, where I started my PhD back in 2011 or 2012. And I was actually really interested in putting tracking tags on birds. That was something I'd been introduced to in the field in various projects. Um, I had done a little bit of radio tracking, but um, you can actually put GPS and satellite tags on birds and see where they go in the ocean. And to me, that was just like the most incredible thing you could ever do because like working in all these seabird colonies, like you see the birds when they come back to the nest to incubate their egg and feed their chick. But when they're not at the nest, they go, you know, however many hundreds of kilometers away from the islands of forage on fish and squid and plankton and jellyfish. And it wasn't until the mid 2000s where we really started to understand like where exactly these birds are going, you know, from the central location to go out and find food. And that to me was just so cool and incredible. Mm. And like, that's what I wanted to do for my PhD. And so um, I found my advisor who I also met on Turn Island and he was already doing some tracking work on albatrosses and boobies. So I started working with him. And in addition to that, I, I'm also really interested in ecotoxicology. And that just kind of grew over time back in 2005. And a lot of these remote places I've been to, like there's just so much trash that washes up on the beaches. And it's like clearly not from the island where, you know, there's only five of us living there. You know, like in Hawaii, there's just this trash coming, you know, we know from Asia because it has, you know, the writing on it and bottles and cans and Mm. all kinds of plastic and stuff. And like we just, I mean, it was kind of crazy. interesting in a way like you'd walk on the beach and you just you'd come across light bulbs and like laundry baskets and tons of fishing gear and one time I found um, an underwater camera that had washed up on the beach <laughs> and like it was it, this was in 2007 and so like this camera like had film in it and so I was like oh maybe I can develop it so when I got off the island I tried to develop it and sure enough I think out of like a roll of 24 there maybe 10 pictures on it that like were okay wow. and it's just some, from somebody's vacation presumably in hawaii it's probably like the coolest like marine debris thing i found on a <laughs> beach but <laughs> and i mean you know it's terrible but i mean like it's just like i think it's a really good example of like how connected we all are you know like this this guy and his family were you know just on this vacation i have no idea who they are and it's probably kind of creepy that i developed the photos but yeah, you know, I, was, like, I was gonna say morgan <laughs> creepy um, you should now put, mm. put you know, with, with social media now, if you've still got them, you should be able to, you know, trace them down. <laughs> oh, those forgotten photos. Yeah. So anyway, like all these, all this trash is washing up on the beaches and like, that's just, 
ever present when you're working in a lot of remote places. And along with that, um, I started learning about like chemical contaminants that are, you know, sometimes on these pieces of plastic and sometimes just in the water and in the air, like Mm. pesticides like DDT and heavy metals like mercury. And so my interest slowly evolved to not only Mm. be interested in tracking and foraging ecology where the birds are going in the ocean, but like Mm. when they're out there and they're eating whatever they're eating, like, how and what kind of contaminants and plastics are they picking up in those places? Cause we know that they're out there. And so my PhD kind of evolved into that. And Jen has been doing really similar work and our interests aligned. And um, I mm. applied for uh, this really cool program that unfortunately doesn't um, exist anymore, but it's kind of cool. It sends grad students from the United States to 10 different countries in Southeast Asia, including Australia. So um, I applied for this scholarship to do this like small project with Jen studying contaminants and seabirds in Western Australia. And so um, I got the scholarship and I went to Western Australia and I studied contaminants and great wing petrels off the coast of Albany down there. And Jen and I had kind of been in contact on and off for many years. And this was a really great way to kind of solidify, you know, like our merging interests in ecotoxicology and seabirds. And then that became one of my dissertation chapters in my PhD. And then um, when my PhD was finished, I was still in contact with Jen and we started talking about ideas for postdoc research and the idea of the balloons came up and that while it isn't directly seabird research, it's still very much related to it and it's still very much related to ecotoxicology. And so I got some more scholarships and we found a little bit of funding, grant money to conduct a balloon experiment and here I am. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. So just to backtrack, so you obviously had this growing uh, affinity for wildlife and uh, against focusing a little bit more attention on seabirds through more exposure and more research. And obviously you're getting this greater appreciation for the impact or, or, or the issue of marine debris and plastic pollution. And a, a lot of people actually obviously re- readily relate to that because it's an obvious problem. You can see it and feel it, whatever. But I guess some people wouldn't understand actually the fact that plastic is often a like a sponge for other contaminants. Can you can you talk to that? Like, so what what sort of the what are the sort of nasty chemicals that do get sort of absorbed to plastics in particular? And do we really understand actually how they impact on the health of seabirds? Yeah, so um, that research is kind of still in its infancy. People are only just starting to look at this problem. Um, I can tell you. There are some POPs, so persistent organic pollutants, and also some other chemicals like uh, PFAS, which is perfluorinated mm. alcohol. 
aromatic uh, substance. Yeah. yeah, something like that. <laughs> Polyfluoro aromatic substance. It's really bad well. stuff. It's Teflon, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, really, yeah, yeah. stuff that Potential was, carcinogens, yeah. Yep, yep, for sure. And these chemicals were designed to last, you know, make something last a really long time. You know, like they're additives mm. to you know, protect something from breaking down or, you know, some, in some cases with flame retardants and just all these mm. chemicals that are just in every, you know, my laptop and just everything that really is in modern life. And so, well, those are everywhere in all of these objects. They're also very much, you know, they can aerosolize and they do aerosolize. And unfortunately, they're just everywhere in the air in the ocean. And so when we have all these plastics and other objects floating in the ocean, they kind of act as like little collectors that can adsorb, you know, these different chemicals that also happen to be either in the air or the water or some, you know, in the interchange kind of between that as ocean currents are moving things around and kind of creating, you know, air bubbles that come down into the, um, just a really, the very shallowest layers of the surface water. And so there's definitely chemicals that are very much taking the plastics and then we have animals eating those plastics. And yeah, what, what gets that, me, Morgan, is, mm-hmm. and, and this actually came out of Jennifer's chat, is the amount of research that we have got to do to understand the problem with plastics and, and you know, the transportation of plastics, the chemicals that are attaching to plastics. It actually blows my mind and Brad how much research we actually haven't done. There's more, so many more questions because this is such a new pollutant, really, and studying and talking to people like you, it's just like, well, we don't have the answers to a lot of these questions. We need more funding. We need to do more research. We know it's really, really bad, but I can't tell you how really, really bad it is because we don't have that data. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, the, you know, the work that you guys are doing is, you know, whilst it seems oh, we're, we're talking about specific birds in specific locations, well, it's a massive problem when you think, you know, there's bird colonies everywhere. There's these mm. problems are not only here in Australia, they're in the US. Or in, you know, it, mm. it, it, plastic pollution doesn't discriminate. It doesn't worry about political boundaries. It doesn't worry about anything in that we see in our day-to-day life. And yet we have very little understanding of it. And, um, again, it's just great to, to, to have people like you come on the show to hopefully explain to our listeners and, and us you know, what what the problem is and try and create a solution to it, I guess. Yeah. And it's worth noting, like, a lot of this funding, I, I think a lot of the times the industry, the scientific industry, for, for, for want of a better term, often the questions aren't being asked because people don't want to know the answers. <laughs> and I think from my perspective, it seems like the industries of the world have have a vested interest in essentially keeping things the way they are. If we don't know how bad a problem is and how we could potentially fix it by changing our current behaviours, big industry just doesn't want to know. So I think that would actually be very difficult to actually, uh, I guess, appropriately resource uh, research to appropriately uh, answer some of these questions. So it almost relies on the passion and enthusiasm and very limited funding available to scientists like Morgan and Jennifer and, and Megan and Lillian, who we spoke to recently as well. And just, just thank goodness for, for you guys, because uh, otherwise I think these questions um, just wouldn't even be even posed as a potential question as opposed to actually getting into some sort of uh, understanding of the answer and the magnitude of the problem and subsequently what we can do about it to drive change. Yeah. Let's face it, the petrochemical industry have a vested interest in keeping everyone using plastic. 
and not knowing how it impacts on the lives of both the wildlife and the human population. Same thing with PFAS. This must be noted, Brad. Uh, up until a couple of weeks ago, Brad didn't realise that the spandex that he loves um, wearing, because Brad's into his triathlons, <laughs> he is basically running around in all plastic oil. And he never knew it. Didn't you know? know? He's a pretty smart <laughs> guy. Know? True, you know? true, true story. I did not know that 35% of all microplastics apparently come from clothing and they're primarily from the laundering of clothes. I had absolutely no idea. Wait, wait. So yeah. uh, you should know. <laughs> yeah, we, we had no idea. Morgan was all over it. But look, obviously, there's a whole bunch of different plastic types. You know, we talked about microplastics, and and obviously, if you if you walked along some of these beaches in, on your remote islands, I'm sure you see an a, an assembly of all sorts of human waste from I don't know from straws to plastic bags to wrappers to everything and, and uh, soccer balls etc. But your focus, at least for the purposes of this recent paper, is on balloons. So wh- why why that focus? Why balloons? Do you just not like kids' birthday parties? You out to sort of destroy kids' birthday parties, or or is it some some other reason? Yeah, you know. <laughs> no, so um, there's kind of two two things that kind of came together to kind of fuel our balloon research. And um, the first is that uh, Dr. Lavers was finding balloons inside seabird stomachs on Lord Howe Island. So these seabird chicks were being fed pieces of plastic and balloons by their parents that they were getting out, you know, on the surface of the ocean. And it was kind of surprising. Like you don't really, I mean, like you think about balloons Maybe not so much in relation to plastic, but they actually act just like plastic in the ocean. You know, like wherever they come from when they're released or when they, you know, get into waterways and the rivers, like they eventually end up in the ocean, sometimes traveling hundreds of kilometers from, you know, where they initially had been used by consumers. And once they're in the ocean, they are floating because, you know, they're really lightweight. And so they're just floating there with the plastic at the surface or just below the surface, you know, just waiting for something to come along and eat it. So that's kind of why we're likening balloons to plastic is because it's essentially the same thing. The birds are eating them, sea turtles, tortoises in the desert are eating them. Like they are everywhere and they are getting eaten. In some cases, because balloons are stretchy, they are getting caught in digestive tracts. And sometimes just like other pieces of plastic, they stay in the stomach. And so that blocks nutrient absorption or they get lodged in the intestines. That blocks nutrient absorption. It also creates like a physical blockage, basically, and the animal can't mm. eat or swallow anything or digest anything. And so, like in many ways, balloons are acting like plastic in the environment. Mm. And so, balloons, unfortunately, anecdotally, I've talked to a lot of people and I've heard a lot of people say that, oh, I find balloons on the beach all the time. But for the longest time on like beach cleanup surveys, balloons weren't really counted separately. Mm. And so, they were either included just like as trash or rubber or whatever, but not specifically as balloons. And so that's changed in the last couple of years, but that's still like a relatively new addition to like, you know, just like the the tally of everything you find that, that organized groups find and fill out mm. when they do beach cleanups. And so we don't actually have a lot of quantifiable numbers to say, oh, this has been happening, you know, for many decades. And like, well, while we know it has anecdotally, like just because they haven't been included in beach surveys like they are now um, it makes it kind mm. of difficult so anyway all that is happening but in addition to that you know we're obviously not only interested in plastic that these animals are eating but also like there's tons of plastic out there like you're saying and some of 
that plastic is marketed or called or is biodegradable. And there's different mm. meanings of biodegradableness and marketing is really, it's a really gray area of marketing and that varies from country to country and even state to state, I think. And so like that can be really unclear, but that doesn't stop many companies from appealing to eco-conscious consumers that are like, oh, I'm going to be, you know, really smart about my purchase and purchase this thing that says it's biodegradable. And so as we were starting to think about latex balloons and plastic and the environment, we started looking into it and there's actually hardly any research that actually quantifies whether these balloons, which are claimed on packaging as biodegradable and 100% natural rubber latex, actually are biodegradable. And so those things came together and kind of fueled our desire to do balloon research. That's interesting. I'm really keen to dive into this historical research because I find that particularly interesting. Just for the listener, what are the key characteristics of balloons in the marine environment that actually make them more susceptible to be ingested by seabirds and other... It's got to be colour though, doesn't it? You know, like... I don't know. I'm guessing floatability. Uh, it looks kind of like a little squid or something. And yeah, colour, bright colours probably attract. I don't, I, I don't know. Do you know? Have you got a feel for that, Morgan? A little bit. So balloons, as I was saying, are floating objects. And uh, some people, especially people that work with sea turtles, sea turtles eat a lot of jellyfish. And so mm. I know there was a documentary in the last couple of years called Rubber Jellyfish. And it's about sea turtles eating balloons because they supposedly think that they look like jellyfish, which mm. very well could be true. So that is happening. And sorry, what was the rest of your question? Well, the, <laughs> yeah, what are they, what are the characteristics of balloons that make them more susceptible to being ingested? Well, right. well, well, well some, some species might like to party just like we do, Brad. You know, like, <laughs> you know, turtles. Well, why do they, they're like balloons. Yeah. <laughs> so the other part of that, I guess, is that Jen has found that there are some common colors of plastic that seem to be eaten and found in seabird stomachs more frequently than others. So we actually designed our study around that and we tested white and blue balloons. White is a really, really, really common color of plastic found in a lot of seabird stomachs, unfortunately. And I think part of that might be due to the fact that a lot of things fade to white or, you know, just really light colors. Mm. Um, and yeah. so we chose to study blue and white balloons because those are really common things that are consumed and presumably they must resemble prey or they must be attractive enough and, you know, really easy to sight when, you know, an animal's foraging. Or they could just be hungry. You know. Or they could just be hungry. Yep. <laughs> well, that, that's the, that's that's the key thing. I think one of the things I can't remember if it was one of our podcast guests, it was Dwan March, or maybe Daryl Blatchley. I think it was maybe Daryl who was talking about whales, and they kind of, and this might be the case for other sort of marine species, in that they sort of see shapes and 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 sort of uh, different light, but they taste, they basically feel with their mouth, and they don't have a sort of a, a regurgitation ability. So if it goes into their mouth and they taste it, it's almost too late to sort of you know spit it back out. So I think at least whales can't spit it out. Maybe obviously birds have this ability to regurgitate, but bolus. Yeah, but uh, boluses. But if it if it goes into their stomach and obviously wraps around their intestine, that's that's essentially a, I would have thought a death sentence for most uh, seabirds. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. Episodes are released weekly, and the next episode will feature part two of this chat. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.